Hello, everybody. You're listening to The Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 423, Off the Pitch with Alex Payne. Chillians, and welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. I'm Frank, joined with a slightly slimmer, a little more white and ghoulish looking Eddie. I don't know if Eddie, I appreciate that. Hashtag norovirus2022. How you feeling? Um, yeah, I've had better weeks. I think it's fair to say, but I'm on the road to recovery at this point. Never. The stomach bug is is the worst, I think, of the sicknesses in terms of things that you eventually get over, but in the moment feel as if you just want to end it. <laughs> I'll actually say as part, for me from that particular virus, it was the, the joint ache because that's just really? the thing. That, yeah. I mean, that was just the thing when you're trying to rest and just every position you put your body in, there is ache in my knees, in my elbows, in my back in my shoulder, like everywhere was just aching. So there was kind of no way, even when there was a respite in all the other symptoms, there was no way to sort of start to feel a little bit better overall. So the aching beat out the having to sleep on the bathroom floor because you couldn't last (laughs) more than 10 minutes. (laughs) Yeah, no, that was, that I kind of got used to pretty quickly. It was, it was literally at one moment, I just wanted to sleep and I was just completely unable to sleep. That was, I mean, at least, at least you were at home and you had good familial support to get yes. you through it. <laughs> yes, exactly. I do think, I think there is an interesting moment. I think you spend a lot of your life, right, wanting to be back home when you're sick, you know, thinking about how the comfort and the support that you would get. And then I think there's a moment when you hit a certain age when there, that is no longer totally there in the same way and where you would be better off somewhere else. I think I've probably, whatever that age is, I've probably hit it. Love thinking about it. There's like this. If it was like four years earlier, they're they're there caring for you, whatever you 100%. need. Stay extra. Yeah. Oh, we'll, we'll call your work. We'll tell you. And then it's like flip the switch. Eddie, will you just get up already? Yeah, suck it. You're up. inconveniencing the family. And and not helped also by the fact right that you know I was my nephew was also around. So you have the tiring impact of a young child who's also taking sucking up a lot of the attention so you really are just an inconvenience because i'm not bringing any of the sweetness and joy of a young child just the messiness oh god but having got this off to a wonderful start we'll have obviously have new listeners tuning in for our interview with alex payne uh co-founder of the room current co-host of the good the bad and the rugby podcast former presenter on sky sports you know we have a really interesting conversation with him coming up about 30 minutes in obviously we don't encourage listeners to skip it but if that's the only reason you're here you know you can skip ahead for it yeah but don't get turned off by this initial talk no no it's not everyone gets sick right let's let's not beat around the bush here exactly (laughs) but yeah great conversation with him about how to break into the media uh some of his best moments from covering sports around the world a little bit of rugby chat, a little bit of podcast talk, and a discussion about the room and organic branding uh, opportunities with influencers, even though he doesn't like to use that word, but 
you know, it's a really interesting conversation. Not organic food, organic in the way it develops. No, exactly. But could be organic food <laughs> if that's your thing. Yes, but it would develop organically with people who like organic food. Exactly. That's a super green transaction. <laughs> there you go. That's the niche you can carve out for yourself. Eddie, today is an anniversary, actually. This might get us into our first topic. Do you want to guess what is the one-year anniversary of, which is crazy to think it's been one year? Um, I will hint at you it was a rise and a fall. A rise and a fall a year ago. No, I know we just had the two-year anniversary of the Last Dance documentary coming out. That was the only anniversary that kind of hit my radar. I don't know what the one-year anniversary is. Anniversary of the Super League. The infamous oh, yeah, I did. Super League. Yeah, I did see that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, they've done a really good job of getting that out of people's minds. It, you know, Just it comes to bring up, it back in a few years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It comes up in conversation very occasionally, but fundamentally all of those clubs have done a really good job of, of moving the conversation on and not having it be brought up on a consistent basis with how can we trust any of you? None of you really have the fans' interest at heart. Yeah, well, and I'm sure some of those clubs have bigger things to worry about now at this point than almost being a part of the Super League. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think there's one or two of them who might not be invited into the Super League if it were now to occur. So <laughs> I think the landscape may have shifted by the time they, that actually the idea becomes a reality. But I guess speaking of the European Super League, we can do a quick catch up, although it's now a week removed pretty much, but of the latest Champions League rounds, which I guess there's not too much to discuss. You know, Liverpool went through comfortably with a second leg three all draw, but having won the first leg they they kind of always knew they were going through barring a a total collapse city were on the back foot for large parts of the second leg against atletico madrid but managed to go through thanks to the one goal they scored at home the big talking point there was just how the match unraveled towards the end and how atletico's dirtier tactics kind of came to the forefront over the course of the match and then you had the the thriller the you know the real talking point of the round between Chelsea and Real Madrid, where Chelsea looked as if they were about to pull off an unlikely comeback, but eventually Real Madrid were able to sneak through, and then the shock of the round, which was Bayern Munich conceding a late goal and getting knocked out by Villarreal. Yeah, I, a lot of places to to go here. I'll just give little tidbits of myself. So, the Chelsea game was one of the first matches in a long time that. I was unaware what was happening, and then I went to Instagram, and on my feed popped up. It was a picture of Jon Snow and like in like a Chelsea kit, and saying like, you know, like they have life. And I looked, and I said, no, no way. And then went and looked, and and then at the time it was when they had just scored the third goal, which then got disallowed. So then as soon as that happened, or not disallowed, but VAR overturned it, right, with the offside. So yeah, after they that. I, I instantly put it on and watched watched the rest of that match. Um, so that that was a great match. And then the City match, I mean, I have 
I draw the line at pulling Jack Grealish's hair. I mean, that's <laughs> that's a no go. That's that's as bad as it gets. There are a few lines that you can cross, but that is one of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm a bit torn. In some ways, I think Atletico's approach to the game is admirable. It's a kind of counterculture movement almost in that they don't play the way the game is played by all the other big teams. At the same time, I find people talk about them as if they're kind of these plucky underdogs and these lovable losers. They have Jao Felix up front. They spent 113 million pounds on him. Their team has been assembled at a great cost. And okay, they might not be spending quite the same sums of money that some of the very biggest teams are, but they are outspending almost everyone else in Europe. So the fact that they're in a Champions League quarterfinals shouldn't be surprising. And look, Diego Simeone took a team that were not particularly relevant in Spain and now turned them into a consistent top three team. They've won La Liga twice. They've made Champions League finals. So, you know, he has done something fantastic there. But it is, they cross a line consistently. And there are moments when the commitment to the cause becomes just unpleasant to watch. And I think that match against Manchester City was one of them. And in some respects, they... they they in particular do it because at the towards the end of matches where they know they have nothing to lose. I mean, you know, Manchester City were in a position there where bookings and red cards could cost them the ability to play in the next stages of the competition. For Atletico Madrid, it meant nothing fundamentally at that point. So I think I admire... I, I, I thought City handled themselves well. Yeah, they did. They didn't... They didn't I mean... It would have been easy for them to react and for yeah. things... For them to actually lose their I mean I think they got rattled by it in just the sense that they were clinging on towards the end of that match and you could tell that you know their mentality definitely shifted in that second half but yeah they didn't do anything stupid which would have been very easy to do and you know I think in particular the likes of Phil Foden with the way he handled being kind of kicked around the pitch I think he he dealt with it pretty well but you know it's just it's a shame because I do want to admire Atletico Madrid, the commitment that they show for the cause, the willingness of all of them just to put in every ounce of effort in every match, and the way Diego Simeone convinces really talented players to do all the dirty, ugly work that other teams can get players to do. It's fantastic, but that it also comes with an actual dirty side. I think that's the shame. And what's more is I, I don't like the hypocrisy. I don't like the fact that Atletico Madrid spend every minute of every match trying to find every loophole loophole in the laws and trying to manipulate referees and trying to you know get opposition players worked out but then the second an opponent does anything resembling any of those tactics they become offended and and treated as if the game is being brought into this disrepute so i think that hypocrisy and inconsistency is probably what bothers me the most if they almost looked on at it and thought okay we're going to give you some and we're going to get some in return i might it might it would sit a little bit better with me but overall i mean i'm very happy they went out both in the, and they're not one of the best four teams in europe and also they just don't deserve when you play that way you don't deserve to be through and i would feel entirely differently if they were a smaller team if this had been like even if benfica had been doing that against Liverpool, I would have understood it more because you would have thought the playing field here is so against you that you have to resort to these sorts of tactics to get through. But the fact that you are talking about Atletico Madrid with the likes of Griezmann and, you know, Jao Felix and, and a host of really talented attacking players, 
and that's seemingly the only way they feel like they can compete. That's the bit I don't like. Yeah, I mean, from someone who's slightly on the outside, you know, you know, I watch a decent amount, but I'm not in in every week and out. But they, to me, I've never considered them a team who's a plucky underdog team. I've always thought of them as a top four or five team in in La Liga, which is one of the better leagues in in the world. So I don't I don't see that underdog story for them at all. So and and you're right. It was. I understand why they were doing what they were doing, but at the same time, if you're gonna if you're gonna cross the line doing it, then you're gonna be the bad guy, and I think you have to live with that. I and I and I think that's the other thing. They almost they don't accept the kind of heel status. No, and that's no, part of don't. the thing. They they sort of they sort of feel as if they're being hard done with the media coverage, hard done by and and. You know, they do get a lot of praise, you know, even Guardiola speaking about them after the match, talking about how the, he does feel like they get misrepresented sometimes in the press because they get talked about as being a negative defensive team. And in reality, they're maybe just a little bit more structured in the first two thirds of the pitch. And then, but still in that final third are very creative and dangerous, which I think is high praise coming from Guardiola because he and his managerial mindset has always been of the opinion that you coach players for the first two thirds, but that's where a manager matters is for those first two thirds of the pitch. And in the final third is where you're letting talented players be expressive and do the, what they do best. So, you know, that's, that's something very meaningful coming from him, but yeah, I mean, I can, and again, there is context, right? In terms of the overall Spanish landscape, they are very much, you know, the younger brother sort of, awkward sibling to Real Madrid but for the last 10 years now they've been consistently in the top three and competing on in the latter stages of European competition so there's a moment at which your mindset has to come catch up with what you're actually doing and yeah they do seem the fact that they don't just accept the heel status I think that would make me kind of like them it's a little bit like the criticism of Deschambeau almost like not being able to like completely embrace the yeah. position you could have within a game is part of what makes it uncomfortable. And if you just said, you know what, I'm going to be the bad guy. No one's going to like me and I'm going to love that they don't like me. Then that would be, you'd have to admire that. But the fact that you're doing everything to make people dislike you and then be like, why does nobody like me? That's the thing that's annoying. And, it, you know, you wonder if they're actually that self unaware or if, you know, they, that's part of it too. But I guess moving on to, to the Chelsea Real Madrid match, my question to you is, I mean, this was this has been a great few weeks for Kareem Benzema. Is he playing up to his potential now, or is he just on a hot on a hot streak right now? It's a tough one. I think he's been kind of criminally, and I use that word intentionally when it comes to Benzema. But I, think I was going to say no criminal jo- I was literally going to say no criminal jokes aside here. <laughs> yeah, I think he's been criminally underrated in the UK because of a player who's, you know, plied his trade in France and then in Spain and you know, it's kind of been easy to ignore for in some ways as not maybe having the full star power of some of his teammates at Real Madrid. So always kind of being overshadowed by the likes of you know, Cristiano Ronaldo or Gareth Bale or, or Hazard or whoever it is. So I think in the UK that people probably ha- are only just beginning to appreciate 
what a good player he is. And I think maybe even some people up until now kind of thought of him almost like Giroud, sort of kind of hardworking, can take his chances, but nothing to write home about. And he's much, much better than that. Great French stereotype right there. (laughs) Yeah. At the same time, I think he's probably becoming slightly overrated. You know, now people are kind of throwing him into, is he maybe the best player in the world at the moment? Is he the greatest goal scorer at least around at the moment? You know, he's playing very well, but I, I mean, I'm not putting him on a par with the likes of even, you know, Erling Haaland, who's 21 years old. So I think there's, depends where you are. And, you know, I think he's, he's showing some of his true quality, but still remains slightly below the very best. Where would you rank him in, in a goal scorer category? Top 10? Yeah, he's definitely top 10 in the top world. Top five? Are we, are we considering him in, in like goal scoring traditional forwards kind of position? Like not throwing midfielders in as goal scorers? Yeah, like, no, no, no. Um, yeah, probably top five, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he might even be third. It's hard. I mean, Lukaku can't really be in the conversation because he's barely playing. So there's one one person who would have figured very highly last season who's who's no longer really a factor. Um, yeah, I mean, you'd have Holland and Lewandowski definitely above him. Then it becomes, you know, Mbappe, kind of difficult to classify him sometimes because he is being played in, in sort of wide positions and but I guess I'd still put Mbappe ahead of him. Yeah, I'm, yeah, he's he's probably he's somewhere in the top five. And then I guess the other follow up to finish up European football would be the uh, FA Cup semifinals, where four days after playing each other for a crucial Premier League match, uh, Liverpool and City played each other in the semis and Liverpool- well, a week. A week, sorry. Yeah. Well, six days. Liverpool kind of took it to them. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it, you know, Manchester City rested more players than Liverpool did. It yeah. felt like Manchester City were willing to lose this one. Still, they're putting on a really strong team. But in the first half, they were terrible. Liverpool were very good. And then City kind of woke up in the second half. Um, but yeah, I mean, it did feel a bit as if City were just willing to roll the dice and see, but weren't going to try too hard in terms of expending players that they'd otherwise want to save for. I mean, because, you know, not only do they obviously have the Premier League run in to worry about, they have the tougher Champions League semifinal. Not to say that Villarreal are in any way a a gimme for Liverpool, but it's definitely an easier prospect than playing Real Madrid. So Liverpool have had Benfica and and now... Villarreal in the latter stages of the Champions League again with the utmost respect to those teams and they're not easy games but when you're talking about Champions League quarterfinals and Champions League semifinals they're as easy as you could expect so you know man management becomes a little bit trickier maybe for City than it is for Liverpool yeah and then you know watching both of those matches I think the question I had for you watching how they unfolded and the difference in the possession from that first match to the second match, and just just the passing and the overall flow. Is Kevin De Bruyne that impactful? Is he that good that it makes such a difference? Because, I mean, they not that they looked like two completely different teams, but the first match, I would have said City easily had the upper hand here. And that second match, 
they didn't look nearly as well in control or just as fluid as they did in that first match. Is 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 he that significant? I think Does he is definitely drop off that much. He's definitely the player that kind of makes them tick. So I do think when once he's not involved, they can of course they're f- packed full of really talented players. So I think they can still play incredible football. But he is the player that pulls the strings for them and can prove the difference maker in a lot of situations and and just kind of brings their overall play together and and that kind of serves as that connecting tissue at times between their midfield and their attacking play. But in addition, I think Liverpool probably took a lot of confidence out of their performance in the second half of that of their Premier League match. I think you know City had them down and out in the first half and then the fact that they let them back in in the second half, I think Liverpool have probably walked away from that feeling as, you know, we spoke about that in the aftermath of that Premier League match. I think Liverpool kind of may feel as if they picked themselves off the canvas a bit and then were able to go toe-to-toe with City. And maybe City might regret come the end of the season, and particularly if they're going to play each other in a Champions League final, they might regret that they didn't manage to just, you know, put their foot on the throat and keep it there because they have... That was an opportunity to, to serve a knockout blow in terms of saying, right now we're much better than you. You can't live with us. And in that first half of that Premier League match, that's what they showed. And then in the second half, Liverpool were able to fight back. I think, yeah, I mean, City, they were definitely missing De Bruyne in that match. And then they just consistently, they just miss a center forward presence. And obviously there's all the talk, endless speculation that they're signing Holland this summer with the release clause that he has in contract because he's available for 65 million pounds, I think it is. Um, So, you know, constant speculation that he'll be going to City and Mbappe is going on a free to Real Madrid and those are the kind of two major transfers that will happen this summer. But, I mean, they need him. Not that we say they need them. They could be on course. (laughs) They need him. (laughs) They could be on course to win the Premier League and the Champions League. But there's still moments where it looks like they need a a true goal scorer because they don't have one. Yeah. So with what you just said, that they are on course to potentially win, are they still your favorite for Champions League and for Premier League? So for the Premier League, I think so. I think they're both going to win all of their remaining matches. I mean, they all win out. Yeah, I think. Perfect. I think they're both perfect from from now on. Um, You know, Liverpool, as of, you know, tonight recording, beat United 4-0 based on United showing that wasn't anything impressive they looked absolutely awful but you know it's one six matches to go for them it's one step closer to to doing you know holding up their end of the bargain if you're a Liverpool from a Liverpool supporters perspective I I just think they both it it's kind of mind-blowing at times because historically you would have always said one of them is going to slip up like winning seven matches in a row in the Premier League was is no mean feat, regardless of who your running is. But it just feels like with both of these teams, they just are able to churn out results, and I think they'll both win all of their matches. So I think City will win the league. I've kind of shifted my opinion a little bit. I think Liverpool will win the Champions League. I feel like I feel like they've got a little bit more swagger at the moment. Like I think they're getting close to their A game and City are just a little bit below par, like not by much, and it's still far too good for most teams, but they're just not quite firing on all cylinders. And look, we're talking about 
what, six weeks away. A lot can change in six weeks, either in terms of injuries or a couple of players really find their top form. That could change everything. But it does feel like Liverpool, certainly from an attacking sense, are playing just about as well as they can right now. And maybe City aren't quite there right at the moment. So I think I'd shift yeah. in, in favor of Liverpool. So just to for our listeners, Liverpool's remaining schedule is Everton, Newcastle, Spurs, Villa, Southampton, and Wolves. And Cities is Brighton, Watford, Leeds, Newcastle, West Ham, and Villa. So, Yeah, so I mean the, the standout ones there would be you know, Spurs from a Liverpool perspective and West Ham from the City perspective. But, and there, there are a few plucky sides in there as well. You know, Leeds, Newcastle, teams who are playing sort of reasonably well at the moment. So I, there's no easy matches. And they're certainly going to, with a level of pressure that will be on both those teams where you know a draw, it could be, you know, it's all over. And, and they're going to be tested because at some point, both of those teams will be behind. You know, that's going to be the interesting thing. Like, you're not going to play out the remainder of these seasons without falling behind to a goal or conceding an equalizer in the second half and kind of having to do that calculation in your head of we have 20 minutes to get a winner or else season is kind of over. So they're, they're both, I'm sure they'll both be tested. I just think they'll both end up doing what they need to do. And so City will win by a point. So switching gears a little bit. Before we get to the interview, I had a little golf news. So this combines golf, NFL, and college football. A little trifecta here. So the first one is, I don't know if you saw the, after the Masters, there was a pretty big article about how John Daly had spent all week of the Masters at Hooters, just watching the Masters yeah, at Hooters. Thing. He does it every year. Beer. That's his thing. I know. Yeah, it's his thing. It's weird. But his son has now cashed in on that. I don't know if you've seen this. So John Daly II, who has only played one collegiate tournament at the University of Arkansas, has now signed an NIL deal with Hooters. So he is the okay. first NIL that Hooters has uh, signed with a college athlete going right to John Daly, not junior, the second to, to get that. How do you feel about an 18 year old college freshman having his first sponsorship I'm, deal be Hooters and no offense to Hooters. Yeah. But. I mean, in some ways, in some ways it surprises me that that's where Hooters brand is. If you see what I mean, like, I know that John Daly still has some cultural resonance, but we're still talking about someone who probably is kind of unknown to anyone under the age of 30. Like, you know, and so it sort of surprises me that either he or his son in whatever, you know, group you're getting, getting them in would be relevant enough to think it's worth signing a promotional deal with. I think that's the thing that surprises me most and not a knock on, I don't know if I'm trying to, I guess he's embracing the legacy of his dad in that one. Part of me would think if I were him, I might be trying to separate myself slightly from some of the less admirable aspects of my father's golfing career. Like the things that maybe cost him fulfilling the potential that he had. There might be part of me that thought in the early parts, even if you're tremendously proud of your dad, who's obviously had 
still, you know, a much more successful professional sporting career than most could dream of. There might be part of me that thinks I'd like to just yeah. get out of that shadow a little bit and not really come across as the next John Daly. Yeah. And even if it were like Applebee's and the story was John Daly goes to Applebee's for five straight days and drinks and eats wings for seven hours, it's still not a good look. No. You know, it's 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 more it's more just the culture that John Daly surrounded him where other golfers, especially golfers on that champions tour, are still you know, up at the gym every morning or taking care of their body and eating healthy and, and extending their careers. And then you have the opposite where you have someone who probably could have had a longer career had he taken care of himself. Yeah. I mean, look, if you're, if you're talking about starting as you mean to go on, if this is the message that John Daly, the second wants to send to the world in terms of what his work ethic will be like and what his priorities are, it's probably Tiger Woods probably isn't doing it. Let's put it that way. Tiger Woods' son, Charlie Woods, right? In in like seven years or whatever, is not signing a deal with Hooters. So, and, and look, I've seen John Daly the second play golf. He's pretty talented. He hit like his dad. He hits the ball a really long way, incredibly fast swing speed. But yeah, if, your priorities might not be quite right in terms of maximizing your golfing potential. Maybe they're right in terms of maximizing the fun you have in your life. That's a whole different thing. I mean, we could get into a really interesting discussion. Who's enjoyed their life more, Tiger Woods or Don or John Daly? One of them has probably drained every. Well, I don't. I don't know that. That's a tough debate. I'm sure we should get them both on and have them argue for who thinks they've they've done a better a better job. Yeah. But I mean, the other issue too, to me too, is. Again, this isn't a knock on Hooters. This is a knock on the sense that I'm pretty sure it's Hooters Bar and Grill. So you're yeah. an 18-year-old freshman, and you're being associated with a restaurant whose primary tag is bar. It's not grill and bar. It's bar. They pitch themselves as a family restaurant, right? I mean, that's their thing. It's like I guess, a family but it's restaurant. still a bar. Yeah. I don't think that's the... You know, speaking of getting Tiger Woods and John Daly on, do you think we could have them on and pitch to them this idea that they each share like if tiger woods pitched stories from his wildest time and then it was just a question of who did this tiger woods or john daly how difficult of a game do you think that would be that'd be a good one <laughs> but good. have i ever told you my i probably have my hooters story i've only been to hooters once in my life did you pull the michael scott no. I'll take a chicken breast, hold the chicken. I went to Hooters in when I was in high school. We went to play football in Vienna. And Vienna at the time was the only European city with a Hooters in it. And we were It's you know, a weird first choice, but okay. And we we found I wanna, this out. I want to know that marketing guy who was like, <laughs> guys, we're gonna expand overseas. Vienna is our target. <laughs> and uh we somehow found this out in the way that, you know. 16 17 year old boys would and then we had a day where we weren't playing so we decided we would walk and check out the hooters and walked into this vienna hooters at three o'clock in the afternoon it was totally empty and we walked in there was one person one waitress working who was probably 55 years old so it in no way delivered on any of the expectations that any of us have ha had had how were the wings excellent phenomenal but yeah, very good. The food was very good, but it wasn't quite what we'd expected.
Yeah, when we were when we were younger, and my parents used to host Super Bowl parties all the time, we would actually get like the wings for the party from Hooters. I mean, their wings are great. We get them from them in this other place that was called Cluck You. Another good play on words there. But hey, if if Hooters wants to become the official bar and grill sponsor, family restaurant sponsor of the Big Chill Podcast, you know we can interview John Daly and his son talk about wings that's fine by us but maybe it can change my impression of hooters but yeah my, so far i think that might be the only time i experience a hooters in my life it's difficult for me to imagine there's only one scenario um podcast reappearance for someone who's not been mentioned on the podcast for a while i think vasilis could be the only thing that could ever take me back to a hooters and a trip to the u.s with vasilis in tow could probably see hooters end up on the list of things we have to go to but i think otherwise the hooter ship may have sailed for me <laughs> well there's always bacillus <laughs> yeah gets said by people a lot of time <laughs> that's a good uh, quote for a t-shirt <laughs> and then the, the last golf thing obviously was they announced the match uh which is kind of this now i guess annual at one point, semi-annual uh, celebrity tournament that they have. And this time, it's going to be June 1st, and it's Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers versus Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen. I, I, I like this better than having the pros and the non-pros play because this is more of a leving, level playing field. I like that aspect. The only aspect I don't really like about this is I don't know why they team up Brady and Rodgers, who are both in the NFC, and Allen and Mahomes, who are both in the AFC, because to me, it'd be a better rivalry to see Mahomes versus Allen, because they're likely to be the bigger rivals because they'll play each other more. Like, how much of a rival is, is Mahomes to Rodgers when they meet, what, once? See, that's not what bothers me about it. I, I think I kind of agree with you, but I think I would have liked more. I guess you, could, I guess the issue is you can kind of spin it whatever way you want. I would have liked the idea of one of the old guard taking one of the young guard under his wing and having it, it sort of... Okay, like which Brady, would have been similar, right? Like Brady almost picking his guy and being like, yeah, you know, and Josh Allen's the next guy and I'm he's going to play golf with me. That would have been sort of fun, but I do... You know, I guess this way they get to spin it as the old, you know, the old guys against the young guns sort of thing. But I, I, because I have to feel if, 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 if there's any rivalry that's established, it's got to be Brady versus Rogers. Like they have to be the most uh, like against each other out of anyone here. They've, they've played the majority against each other. Are they though? In, like, I mean, how I mean, many times has Mahomes and Allen played? Three? Actually, isn't that one of those shocking things, though? Isn't that one of those things where you hear about it? Like, Rodgers and Brady have played each other very few times over the course of their career. Because they've been AFC and NFC yeah. for most like, of their I, career. Like, I think that was one of those things when the Bucks played the Packers, where it was, it was like only the fourth like time the fourth or something. Time, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, in the reality, the, you know, the Brady rival is Peyton Manning. I mean, that's... Yeah, but I feel like Rodgers must dislike Brady because Brady gets a lot of attention that Rodgers probably thinks he should get. I think this is the issue. I think, like, 
from an outsider's perspective, you feel as if Rogers should dislike everyone and everyone should dislike Rogers. But <laughs> maybe that was it. Maybe no one wanted to play with Rogers and Brady drew the short straw. <laughs> but, but then probably he's kind of popular if you're not on his team. Like he clearly doesn't do deal well with actual teammates. And maybe Brady will hate him by the end of 18 holes. But it seems as if and if nothing else, he must get a tremendous amount of respect just for his, his talent level, right? But yeah, I'm, I'm, I agree with you that it's more interesting without the professionals involved, just because we see the professionals play golf all the time. Like we, and in a sense, this puts more pressure on the amateur golfer because you don't have the professional there to kind of bail you out. Like this could get really, really ugly. You know, like you knew when you had two professionals there that no matter what it's like you might chunk the couple shots but the kind of you'll progress down the hole pretty smoothly just because you've got the other guy doing the right things this could literally be it won't be because they're obviously will practice heavily ahead of this time and i mean patrick mahomes i've seen him play golf he's a pretty decent golfer we've obviously seen brady and rogers play before i'm going to assume josh allen's pretty good if he's agreed to deal to do this but i feel like josh allen can crush a golf ball yeah just by just looking at him i feel like he's got a lot of a lot of swing velocity but but it's still you know there's there's it's still at play here that you could just have like seven consecutive tee shots just lost in the woods and that was never gonna happen as long as a professional was there but yeah and the other aspect i like is it's only 12 holes and I think the first one or two suffered from the fact I think they went a full 18, and it's just it's too much. You could even cut it to nine, and I'd be happy. But 12, I think, is a decent medium where you're getting enough. It's probably going to be three hours worth of, of play. Yeah, they did they did that shift with the Kepka Deschambeau. Because um, because the one before rivalry. it had gotten dark and they couldn't even finish. <laughs> yeah. No, I think 18 is too much. Because I mean, for most people, right? It's it's more of a novelty. It's a tune in for a couple of holes and then watch the highlights. I think I can't imagine there are many people out there who are literally going to sit down for the full 12, 12 holes and watch it live. I mean, as much as I love sports, I kind of have to question how much free time you have if this is priority viewing for you when it comes around. But I mean, oh, I already can't. I already canceled two parties. <laughs> Was one of them with Tom Brady and the other one with Aaron Rodgers? Yeah, I had to uninvite Patrick Mahomes, unfortunately. So, on that note, the smooth transition from golf to our interview with Alex Payne, but I guess it's as good a time of ever to switch over to that interview, which we now recorded a few days ago, but is as relevant as ever. And uh, Yeah, let's do yeah. it. Well, everyone, welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. We're now delighted to be joined by our guest, Alex Payne, who is the co-host of the the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, the Rugby, sorry. Come We're all ugly. We have rebranded the rugby. Yep. Uh, on words, you know what I mean. Yeah, the Rugby Podcast and CEO and co-founder of The Room, a, a company that tries to connect brands with influencers who are genuinely passionate about the brands that they're then endorsing. Alex, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Lovely to chat to you both. Yeah, I like I like your global setup. Very, very nice to be here. Yeah, yeah, we're 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 mixing time zones here, which is always interesting. And actually, 
kind of unusual for Frank because typically we are recording quite late at night European time in sort of midnight, one o'clock in the morning. So this is yeah. a mix for, for Frank to actually be doing a morning session is unusual. Yeah. Good I, on you, Frank. Well done. Yeah, I just, getting up I, for us. Oh, no, I just got off a, a work Zoom, so I'm like amped up and ready to go. <laughs> All right. Let's fire into it. So, Alex, I mean, there's a number of topics we want to talk to, everything about the podcast, rugby, obviously the room, and and just your background in media. I think all of that is very interesting. I guess, trying in terms of picking where to start from, I guess the room might be an interesting starting point. So if you could just explain to our listeners a bit more about the background of the company and sort of why, how you came about creating it and, and what the sort of purpose of the company itself is. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I'll try to be brief. So, um I t- before I do that, actually, just to give you a sort of your, your listeners, you've got absolutely no idea who I am. My my background is actually sports broadcasting, and I did twenty years uh, working for a company in the UK called Sky. Um, some of the best days of my life, where we could talk anecdote after anecdote. Um, I think at the point when sport was biggest in in the public psyche, and when um, you know Sky as a company had sort of all the rights that they wanted to at that point, um, they were properly good fun days, and. The reason I mentioned that element of it in context of, of what we're now doing with the room is that it's because of the fact that I and I, I am absolutely not interested in being a celebrity or an influencer. My wife will tell you that I am very middle aged to middle age and, and have been for some time. But the reason for sort of mentioning the sports element before talking about the room is that because I built up a fairly admittedly tepid media profile, um, I was beginning to experience uh, an unusual phenomenon, which is brands throwing things at me and asking me to do something with it. Uh, or very rarely I would get a brand saying, can we pay you to talk about X, Y, Z on your, your Twitter or your Instagram? And I'm, I'm weak at best on social media. And I found myself a lot of the time not really wanting to get paid. I don't want to stick stuff up on my Instagram channel. It's, you know, it's a, it's a pretty, um, sort of pretty big vacuum at the best of times, but it's just not really my thing. And the things that I was being thrown and gifted, I I didn't really want, and I didn't really want to talk about. And the whole concept for this business, The Room, came about because one of the opportunities that came my way was a a lovely box with 500 quid's worth of Star Wars merchandise in it, okay? Classic promo box, brands send out hundreds of thousands of a year, and in this box were books and games and DVDs and TV controllers, beautifully packaged, and a lovely note which said, Alex, we hope you love all of this. If you do, we'd love you to tweet about the fact that we're showing Star Wars back-to-back on our movie channel all weekend. Classic promo box, as I say. All they really want is social media exposure to drive eyeballs to their viewings at the weekend. And apparently they had used an agency who'd spent the best part of a week crunching databases and trying to sweat little back books and trying to find people to give these boxes to. And yours truly was the lucky recipient of, of one of the 100 that they sent out. And I have absolutely no interest in Star Wars whatsoever. I haven't seen it since I was eight. I've got no interest in spending the weekend watching Star Wars. And so I didn't really know what to do with it. I didn't really want it. And it just sort of sat on my desk for a little bit. And then for some extraordinary reason, I can't really tell you why, I sent a tweet for them saying, hey, everybody, watch Star Wars this weekend. But because I've got no real interest in it, uh, that tweet got a whopping 12 likes. Uh, Probably four or five of them were, were bots. And... I sort of found myself thinking, what an absolute waste of my time, what an absolute waste of my audience's time who follow me because I talk about sport and the games that they can watch the weekend. And what a total and utter waste of the most successful movie franchise in history uh, and the time and the effort and the campaign that they're running. And so I sort of was mulling this over and thinking, why on earth can Star Wars not find 100 really influential people at the click of a button who would go, 
I love your films. Send me that box and I will go bananas because I love the films. And that essentially is what the room has been built to do. So instead of brands running around and either throwing money at people and probably paying, you know, a lot of cash to people who never quite know whether they love your brand or whether they love the money, or as we you know, explained with the Star Wars episode, just throwing stuff onto the ether and hoping that you get something back for it. Star Wars comes to the room, they create an opportunity, as we call it. Hello, we're Star Wars. We've got 100 boxes of cool, you know, uh, limited edition Star Wars merchandise. And we want to give it to people who love Star Wars and would be happy to talk about the fact that we've shown these films at the weekend. And so it's a kind of contra deal. It's a value exchange. Uh, that goes onto a browse wall. On the other side of the, the browse wall and the marketplace, income your pre-vetted people of influence who are far more interesting than I ever hope to be. But they are then able, once they're accepted, and I, I think we're, we're fairly selective about who we let on, but once they're in, they're able to choose uh, the campaigns and the brands that they truly love and are truly interested in and gen genuinely want to talk about because they're interested in it. And so they will send Star Wars a note and say, I love the films, ping it to me, and I'll go bananas on Twitter. Or send it to me, my son is obsessed right now, and I'll do a lovely YouTube video of him going bananas with it. Or I'm a radio DJ, DJ. give me five of those, and I'll give them out as competition prizes. And in doing so, I'll talk about your viewings at the weekend. So uh, it's a very long-winded answer, and apologies. I probably wound down all the time that we had. But essentially, having found a genuine problem from being, you know, a, a generously given things that I, I didn't really want, and no, also not able to get to the things that potentially you do. So there are loads of stories I'd love to tell because of, you know, I'm in a very fortunate position, but you, it's impossible to get to those brands or have sensible conversations. But ours is a site. It's all about value exchange. Brands offer opportunities and the people who are genuinely interested and keen to be a part of it are able to say to that brand, I love it, I need it, I want it. And I will talk about it because it's genuinely something that fits with who I am and the, and the stories I like to tell. And so it's beneficial for both sides. And that's the end. And, and just to be clear, then, there's no exchange of money. It's just here's some product. You know, you you love it. Talk about it a little bit more. That's that's the purpose. Exactly. And it can be everything. It's products, campaigns, it's experiences. We actually want to build it out. Uh, into charities and causes as well. So um, the idea will be that the members of our community will understand that if they are able to go out for dinner in the city of their choice or get some new golf clubs because they're playing in a pro-am or you know, receive the home gym kit because it's currently locked down, that actually, if you have an engaged audience, of course you should get paid to talk about the brands that are right for you to be talking about. And I think consumers are getting increasingly savvy as to when a, a brand association and a hashtag ad is a genuine fit and when it's just people taking cash for posts. And, and I think the latter is seeing a dramatic drop off in engagement. But if you are influential and you have an audience, of course you should get paid to talk to that audience. But in order to retain their engagement and their interest, you have to talk about the things you love. And that's why they follow you in the first place, because you create good content, you tell good stories. They don't follow you because you advertise. Um, so yeah, you have to talk about the things you love and that's your contra. And actually, if you've got an engaged audience, it's probably important that you do the right thing and you support the charities and the causes that you genuinely believe in. So we, we talk to our members about the need to blend commercial contra and cause-related content, quadruple C, um, because that is what gives you presence and engagement, um, but it also enables you to, to, to use it to, to, to your obvious benefit. Yeah, I mean, it, ma it makes total sense to me. I mean, I've spent the last 10 years or so working with with tech startups and we've pumped a ton of money into trying to get influencers, even highly niched influencers sometimes to yeah. promote a product or a software or, you know, a brand and nine times out of 10, it's failed miserably, both because I yeah. think they don't really, they're not passionate about it. They have zero interest. You know, you've sent them a kind of outline of what the product is and they've done this unenthusiastic 
ad read on a podcast or on a video or a tweet. And I think, like you said, I think people cotton on to it pretty quickly yeah. that this is just, they've had money. I'd be interested to know, does this mean, and not, can you kind of bypass the requirement then for them to declare that this is a paid? Um, that's a very good question. I was I was actually just going to quickly pick up on your point. It's not just influence, I think, where everyone's searching for, for advocacy and authenticity at the moment. It's politics, it's news. You know, everywhere you look, people want to know that what they're looking at is authentic and is genuine. And I think if you're just taking cash, we, we talk a lot about, you know, in the room, brands don't purchase influence. They don't, they don't buy their way onto people's grids and influencers don't sell themselves to the wrong brands. It's, it has to be collaborative. And we hope that that's a much more beneficial way to work. In answer to your question, um, we are constantly educating our members around, you know, we have obviously ASA uh, here in the UK and what their guidelines are. Uh, it, it is becoming ever more sort of prominent and it absolutely is right that the, the right hashtags and handles are used to, to protect consumers and, and for, for, you know, sort of genuine declaration. The metric that we offer, which is nobody getting paid and also nobody controlling any content, is not, um, well, certainly hasn't been in the past, um, a requirement for hashtag ad. It is hashtag gifted um, over here. We've actually often thought that there's, a, there's room for a sort of hashtag contra and, and to flesh that out, which is that it's a declaration from an influencer that I'm choosing to talk about this thing as a value exchange. Um, and I've, I've chosen to work with the brand rather than the brand just throwing something at me and, and therefore I'm hashtag gifting it. So it's an ever moving landscape. It's ever tightening. We're very big on educating our members. We're also, um, it's a little bit like buying a Ferrari and, and the, you know, the, the, the showroom manager as you drive it out saying, look, it's up to you whether you go over 60 or not. I mean, we, we can't control all of the content that our influencers create, but we're very big on making sure they know the latest guidelines. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, seeing the benefit of, of, of a hashtag contra where they, they have chosen to do it, which is more palatable to a consumer than a hashtag ad, which is where I'm being paid to talk about it. Oh, it makes a lot of sense. And I mean, and I, I also think, you know, we've always thought about it when I've been working with startups, you're kind of trying to buy credibility. And and that's yeah. that's fundamentally what you're trying to do. So you're trying to piggyback off someone else who's able to say, hey, I do this a lot. And this is part of the, you know, the core setup that I have or a product that I love or a service that I love that helps me achieve these things. And, yeah. and as soon as people can sniff out the fact that it's just paid, you, you kind of, you, it's immediately blown out of the water. So I, I do understand from, from a, both a brand and an influencer's perspective that you're able to endorse products that you actually like versus just saying, yeah. well, I, I got a little bit of money. So I got to say that I love Gillette razors, even though I never, yeah. even though I never shave. You know, like things, you know, things like that. But we, we also, we do, I mean, it's been a very interesting journey for us because we are, what are we, probably four years old. Now, and I think the market has swung massively to where we have been sitting all this time, but it's taken quite a lot of education on our behalf. And I, you know, we talk a lot to our brands now, you know, can you afford to ignore the influential people who truly love you? Is that, is that something that as a brand in this day and age you can afford to do? But if you engage with them and you reward them and you build brand fans rather than just paying people to talk about you, you build genuine brand fans and you work with them to, to unlock and develop their appreciation for what it is you're doing, you will get far more out of them than you ever will just by paying someone. If I pay you to promote my product, it's a thousand quid and it's a grid post and that's the job done and you get your grid post. We'll take it, Alex. If I unlock, <laughs> we'll take it. <laughs> done deal. Yeah, absolutely. 
But um, I never got offered that money, otherwise I possibly wouldn't be sitting here. But um, but but also, but in, in contrast to that, if you plug into someone who says I love your brand and you work with them on a consistent basis and you offer them, you know, new new product before other people or access to parts of the business that, that others might not be able to get to, you will get far more back in terms of brand love and conversational um, sort of authenticity and coverage and, and word of mouth and positivity, etc. Than you ever will just by saying transact and we'll see you another time so, so you said you pre-vet your influencers what what chances a yeah. mid 30 year old person living out in the desert in the united states have what kind of chance do i got <laughs> well, wait 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 wait. let me preface i have about 450 followers on instagram so <laughs> I, I, i'm not going to promise anything to you frank you might be in the waiting room for some time but we do actually have plans to to reward everybody who comes to us and um, that might be for another right. time. Um, currently, I think you'd be possibly on the waiting list for a little bit longer, but we are actually, and it's, it's, it's sort of great to be talking to you, to you guys because we're actually in the process of getting ready to launch in the US. So we've done quite a lot of market research um, and, and the time is now for us. I mean, we were actually planning to do it probably about 18 months ago, but lo and behold, um, our good friend COVID got in the way of pretty much everything. So um, yeah, it, it's... Now is the time. So, you know, I'll, I'll, um, I'll start bumping the followers up. I, I, I can get at least 15 more. <laughs> you've come, to, you've come to the right place, Alex. But actually, what I would say, and this is a genuine point here, is that we, we don't call our members influencers. We, we talk about content creators and people of influence. And we are very big on making sure that the people who fit into the room are the right people for the brands that we're working with. And so we talk a lot about people who have. May not, maybe not got the largest of audiences, but they tell amazing stories and they talk to interesting people and they care about causes that really need their support. Um, you know, we'd much rather have somebody on who's got 20,000 followers and they've rode the Atlantic and they've climbed Kilimanjaro and they genuinely sort of believe and um, position themselves as, a, as a, an interesting storyteller. That's much more interesting to us than someone with 100,000 followers who poses in the swimsuit every, every Tuesday and hashtag ad hashtag. Wow. Well, now I'm offended. <laughs> oh, well, I'm sorry. That might help your, uh, your application come through. But, um, but uh, yeah, we're, we're trying to create, essentially, um, it's a very simple mantra, a home where good brands and good people form these really good collaborations. So if you create amazing content, Frank, we are, we're, we're keen to hear from you. Well, there we go. When, when our listeners start to hear all these new endorsements roll in, they'll know where yeah. it came from. Perfect. We'll look forward to it. Swimsuit, swimsuit applications are obviously <laughs> when we start promoting all of those bikinis, we'll we'll know exactly where it's where it's what's happened. So you you mentioned obviously your background in sports media, and yeah, uh, I guess how did that come about? I mean, I think we have listeners. We've had guests on previously who've you know built you know very successful media careers. And I think for a lot of people listening who are passionate about sport and who have, or anything, it doesn't obviously necessarily have to be that, but often it feels as if they have maybe all the skills and knowledge necessary to, to be able to do what they see on TV or on the radio, but they just don't yeah. know how to get there. What was the process yeah. like in terms of entering into your media career and how did it come about? So that is a very good question. I, um, I, there are a million ways to get in. Um, and I genuinely advocate the best way to do it is to start in the basement. And um, I went to a 
you know, pretty good school in the UK. I went to a very good university. I did, um, bizarrely, I did history of art at university, which doesn't lead directly into sports broadcasting. But, you know, I worked quite, actually, originally I wanted to be a sculptor, funnily enough, many years ago, um, but was never, ever talented enough to do that. So I, my, my great love growing up, like most people, um, or a lot of people, certainly a lot of your listeners, was, was sport. And I was the kid who, if I wasn't kicking a ball, I was watching something. Um, and I had many, many happy hours doing that. And I, at about 21, and the reason I mentioned the history of art thing, I was pretty disengaged with my degree, um, pretty much from the off, to be honest with you. And instead of working hard in the term time and taking the holidays off, I would have a lot of fun at university and then work really hard during the holidays. And I recognised there were lots of things that I sort of looked into. I wanted to potentially go into advertising. Um, I only went to the army, actually. But sport was always my real passion. And so I, and it was a very uh, depressing, it was, uh, it was probably 21 years ago that I started out on the work experience trail. And I wrote letters to all sorts of clubs and agencies. Um, and I wrote a letter to Sky saying, I'd love to come in. I've got two weeks uh, in the summer holidays. I'd love to come and do some work. Um, you know, any chance? And I think they said, no, you've done nothing else. Go and do something and then, and then apply to us again. So I went and worked at my hometown club, which was Bath Rugby at the time. I was a huge, huge Bath fan. And I did a few days with them, and that was all good fun. And then I went back to Sky and said, look, I'd love to come. I've done a bit of work. Can you can you give me a couple of weeks? And lo and behold, they, they sort of very kindly let me in, and I just trailed, and I made a lot of tea and coffee. I, I sort of emptied the bins, did the photocopying. I mean, it really was starting at the very basement level, but it was absolute, uh, some, of the, some of the greatest days of my life. I was sort of eyes on stalks. It was everything that I wanted. I was working with people who I'd, grown up watching and idolizing on television i was learning you know an enormous amount about um you know an industry i found fascinating i was working i ended up in the rugby department i ended up working in the sport that i was hugely passionate about and i ended up going from making the tea and coffee at sky in london to saying at the end of the the two weeks if i get myself out to australia uh, which is where the british and irish lions tour which is sort of one of the most romantic notions uh, in sport full stop. It's England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland coming together, the best players of, and they set off to the other side of the world and they play test matches against Australia, South Africa and New Zealand. And they go with about 30,000 followers from this part of the world. It's, I mean, it's an amazing concept and it's something that, that means a huge amount to me. Um, so I said to the, to the guy in charge of the rugby department, if I'm out there, um, can I work for you on test match day? And he said, yeah, sure. So I spent my student loan flying to Australia. Uh, I had a couple of mates who'd gone out there as well. We drove um, Brisbane, Melbourne, Sydney in a proper, proper old banger. I mean, we're bloody lucky to survive it, to be honest with you. But on game day, I ended up working uh, in these just these cauldron arenas. And um, the most extraordinary thing happened actually on the first, the first test match between Australia and the British and Irish Lions. And I was meant to be sitting in a television truck and everyone will know what they look like. They're sort of kilometre and a half from the stadium and you plugged into wires and I was going to be pressing buttons every time somebody made a tackle and that was my input on the day I was going to be a sort of stats inputter and the kit um it, it got caught in customs and I was a 21 year old kid at this point and so there was nothing for me to do other than make tea and coffee on game day and that's fine I'm very happy doing that but about 15 minutes before kickoff um you know, I made my last cup of tea and coffee and everyone was about to get down into the game itself and a guy just came up and he gave me a pitch side pass. And he said, look, there's nothing for you to do. Go watch the game. And I walked out. I said, you know, it's still funny. It still gives me sort of um, hairs on the back of my neck. I walked out of this sort of underground tunnel at, at the Gabba in Brisbane. 
And it's still, if you're a Lions fan, it's one of the most iconic games that they've ever played. It was an absolute sea of red. The, the British and Irish fans went to Australia and they turned an Australian stadium red, which is the Lions colour. And I walked around the pitch 15 minutes before watching a team that means a huge amount to me. And I ended up sitting on a plastic chair at the end of the Lions replacement bench. And I was a 21-year-old kid on the other side of the world making tea and coffee in an industry with people who I had just an extraordinary amount of respect for, sitting at the end of the, the, you know, the substitute bench, six yards from the pitch, of a game that turned out to be one of the most defining performances of their era. And that was, the, that was it, really. At that point, I was just like, there is nothing else on earth that I, I want to do. And so I finished my degree in a pretty haphazard fashion. I joined a week after I left university, still photocopying and um, you know, making tea and coffee. And I got very, very lucky. And you need an enormous amount of fortune to be able to, to fulfil a dream like I have. But you've also got to be in the right place to be lucky. And so that's where the hard work comes in. Uh, I went from making tea and coffee to reporting. I'd never done any public speaking. I'd had no training at all. I'd never, I'd never really held a microphone, funnily enough, before the first time that I was reporting on a pitch side uh, live interview game, uh, live interviews of game. And then it went very quickly. I, I did, I did reporting. I did presenting. Um, I sort of bobbed around in the backwaters. I did a bit of poker, which was great fun. Lots of tennis. Um, we have a twenty-four hour news channel in the UK called Sky Sports News, which was an institution when I sort of started on it. I was, I think, I was the youngest presenter on it. I looked. I was 24, but I looked about 15, I think. So it was quite hard to get any credibility. And then you do enough of it and you relax into it and you you sort of, you begin to make it your own a little bit. But it, it takes a long time. And, you know, again, I'm sort of conscious I'm, I'm waffling a little bit. But the advice I would give to people who want to do it is go after your passion. You know, I'd never have made it in music or, uh, you know, politics because I don't wake up in the morning and turn to those pages in the papers. You have to go for your passion because it gives you an enormous you know, love for what you're doing. And that's really important. And then you just don't stop trying. And, you know, the the landscape is totally different now. Anybody can be a presenter on their own channels. Um, and if you're good, you'll get cut through. Um, you know, I, I started in a depressingly sort of analog era when it really was, you know, 15 channels on Sky. And, and I, I was very, very lucky. But um, I worked bloody hard to be lucky, I think. Um, I hope that answers your question. No, I, no, it, it totally does, and and you know, I think it it gives a lot of the right messages to people yeah. who are aspiring to get to break into that industry. One of the things I'd be interested to hear about is, you know, you talk about having no public speaking background and never really having held a microphone. A lot of people like to talk about whatever industry they break into, the kind of concept of imposter syndrome. Yeah. How heavy was that for you then, as oh, you sort of start to suddenly be a face on television, but feeling maybe slightly out of place in the process? um uh enormous enormous um problems with it and I, I i genuinely would not be if my career had started 10 years when did twitter start 2007 something like that so if my career started 10 years later i would never ever ever have got to where i am now because i had so many shocking moments that the, the producers the, the, the outcry you know i'd have gone i'd have gone viral i mean i had there's one particular incident where i had an absolute meltdown on air and i couldn't hear anything and i it looked people thought i was having a stroke um and it still trotted out every christmas in something called sports funniest moments or something <laughs> like that i think i got to number three nice uh, not bad out of, out of <laughs> really good really good 
Um, there's a, there was a golfer called John Vandervelde. I don't know how much you we, guys love. We, we, we literally we, just we, spoke we, about this the other last day. Episode, last episode. Last episode. You kidding? Yeah. Well, because we were talking like the Masters breakdown and kind of and, on, yeah, yeah, and, so, and, and moments you'll never forget uh, thought, about someone who didn't actually win. No, yeah. <laughs> so I, I am I am broadcasting equivalent of John Vandervelde, which is I reckon by conservative estimate I've done twenty thousand hours of live broadcasting. I've probably done fifty international matches, four Lions tours. 50 England games, I've probably presented three, 400 test matches. And all anyone ever asked me about is my meltdown at Adams Park between Wasps and Bath in a sort of nonsensical, non-interesting game on a wet Wednesday night. Um, but that's life. And, and do you know, Frank, the re- it's interesting because that, and I sort of inadvertently got to it, but that was almost the best possible thing that ever happened to me because it made me realise that it, none of it really matters. And... I've actually helped a few people with coaching and presentation um, over here in London and, uh, over the years. And I always sort of go back to that, regardless of what happens, the sun still comes up tomorrow. And if you're lucky, your partner still loves you and your kids probably will. So don't really worry about it as much. I had a spectacular cock up on air. I was back on air six days later and it was all fine. So the imposter syndrome was enormous. And that was because I started on a channel that was obsessed with football. and I didn't really know anything about football. I looked 15, even though I was 24, 25. Um, but it's funny enough, you, you, it's like a graph, really. The, the point at which I really began to love broadcasting was almost the point that the tech business took off because that became my real like focus. That was the thing that had to work. And therefore, since then, and that was probably five years ago, since then, broadcasting is nothing but a hobby now. And it's really good fun. And I don't really mind if it goes well or badly. And... Um, I have relaxed so much on air as a result because it's not my be all and my end all. I think if you are totally immersed in something, um, it becomes a little suffocating after a while. And actually, we have to remember that sport is entertainment. It's fun. It's it's drama. It's romance. It's all the things that you you know you tune in for when you watch the teams you love. Um, and you have to kind of reflect that as a as a broadcaster. You have to make it energetic and fun and. You know, if it's crap, you have to say it's crap. Um, and so I, the, the less I focus on it, I think the better presenter I've become. Um, but yeah, I struggled enormously with imposter syndrome. And probably it took me 10 years before when that counts. And I, do, I, I don't do nearly as much as I used to. I'm, I'm doing a bit more uh, than I have. But um, I do really miss that buzz of you're on air in five, four, three, two, one, Q. I, I miss that buzz but it took me 10 years to get to a point where when they said Q I was like showtime as opposed to oh my god I hope I don't pause this up um but everybody has it everyone has imposter syndrome and, and I guess along those same lines you said you know you moved up so quickly that I feel like you probably weren't used to and accustomed being around these probably to use celebrities and athletes that you've watched your whole life. So how, what was that like kind of jumping in and, you know, all of a sudden two months ago, you're watching and maybe idolizing this person play on the pitch. And then now you're right next to them, asking them questions and interviewing them. I mean, was that, that had to be super nerve wracking at first. The first, the first time I ever did a, um, so r- rugby is my passion. That's the sport I love. And when I began on this channel called Sky Sports News, I looked 15, as I said, I was 24. They said, look, don't, you're, you're, you're not capable yet. You're not, you haven't got enough miles under the belt to be able to. So 
when you when you cover a sort of a, a game specifically, it, there's there's no water cue. You don't you, you just you just host the show in the way that you would. But on a, on a news channel, it's all written for you, so you are reading off an water cue. So they said that you've got to get hours and hours and hours under your belt, feeling comfortable on air, knowing what the terminology is, knowing where to look, practicing your interviewing techniques. Um, and I was very very comfortable with that. Off we go. And then about it must have been about four months in, and I I was absolutely dreadful i mean i was all over the place but the rugby department knew that i knew my stuff and i had done a lot of work experience with them i've been to australia as mentioned so they knew that i was very keen on the sport and i was on a this is a long-winded story but i was on a shift between 10 and midnight on sky sports news so it's, and then they repeat the 11 till 12 hour three till six in the morning and the whole thing starts again 24 hour sort of rolling news and we were in the 11 till 12 hour and someone came running into the gallery and said, you've got to go home, you've got to go home. There's been a, a drama with the main rugby presenter. He cannot present tomorrow's games. We need you back in at 4.30 in the morning. You've got four games of international rugby to present. And it's sort of, it, it's a little bit like the kid who gets plucked off the bench and goes on to, you know, play up front for Real Madrid. I mean, it was that sort of moment. And I came back in at 4.30 the following morning, having not slept a wink. I hadn't got a script. I didn't really know what the games were. And I was sort of being like brog marched through by this sort of team of people saying, right, you're going to be fine, but there's a hell of a lot that you need to know. And this is how, you know, so it's like, you're going to be fine. But it just was chaotic. And I will never, ever, ever forget the moment. I was totally out of my depth, um, fairly petrified. And I had a panel that consisted of Sean Fitzpatrick, who is a World Cup winner and one of the greatest rugby players. I mean, he's, he is... He is a straight into any Hall of Fame 15 without a shadow of a doubt. Just one of the hardest people to ever play the game. Michael Liner, who won the World Cup with Australia, arguably their greatest captain, world record point scorer. Will Greenwood, who won the World Cup with England and is arguably one of England, you know, got the best try scoring ratio of any Englishman in the history of the game. And a guy called Bob Skinstad, who was essentially in his prime, the David Beckham of South Africa. And I was sitting there and the call comes through and they go, right, you're on in 15 seconds. And I mean, it's like, it's just like staring at a juggernaut, you know, you've got your eyes between the headlights. And Fitzy, who has now become a very good friend and actually was sort of messaging me about something yesterday, he just leant over as they went 10, 9, and he just went, don't fuck it up, mate. And that was it. <laughs> and I, I don't know if I can swear on your pod, apologies if I can't. No, no, you can't, can swear all you want, it's no problem. Don't fuck it up, mate. And I just went, hello, and welcome to a big day of International Rugby Union. And it was like, it was just going off the top board. And I, I, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. It just was a whirlwind. And I loved every single second of it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's funny because I, I went into a sport where my idols, you know, I was, just, I was just surrounded by them. And you do go on a bit of a journey when you realise that actually some of them, you know, they all get up in the morning, put their pants on like everybody else. And it it rubs off after a while. Um, I was given a very good piece of advice, actually, when I was sort of starting out, which is never try to be friends with current players. And I totally subscribe and sort of endorse that. If, if as a broadcaster, you know, you need to tell stories that are sometimes amazing, but also sometimes quite difficult, coach needs to you know, move on or players need to be uh, retired or whatever it is, you, you have to have a distance between the two sets. But the other thing I'd very quickly say is it's extraordinary how a lot of the players, certainly in the UK, they're, they're very wary of the media, et cetera, and that's fine. That's their right. But as soon as they get near retirement, they start getting a little more, oh, great. So, yeah, we'd love to try some television someday. And it's a, there's a lot of poaching turned gamekeeper uh, in the UK. And the interesting thing about that is often you will get players coming into studio who you are like, oh, my God, you know, what a player. 
and they're absolutely terrified being in a live environment. They're worried about what they're going to talk about, whether they look okay. And and so often as, as, as well, what I found is, as I grew into the role as a presenter, um, my job actually became far more about making people comfortable and ensuring that they are, you know, really happy to be doing what they're doing rather than sort of idolizing them. And, and, and um, you know, that falls away pretty quickly as you grow up, I think. But at the start, hell of a problem. I, I can imagine. And I mean, in our own small way, we can relate. I mean, we've had guests on who, you know, some of them, I mean, like yourself, are extremely comfortable speaking. And then other other times they are just immediately nervous, which can be kind of striking because you are imagining these people who, yeah. you know, sort of handle massive amounts of pressure on a consistent basis. So in your mind, you yeah. imagine that they'll just be like that constantly. Yeah. But you're obviously taking yeah. them outside of their comfort zone and then everything shifts, which is understandable. I want to touch on something you you mentioned over the course of that story, which is, I mean, for our listeners in the U.S. and and kind of when you're talking about being on Sky Sports News, it's sort of the equivalent of being on ESPN, obviously, and and Sports Center. Um, yeah. And what I find interesting in what you mentioned there, you talk about how everything is scripted for you, and you're just reading off a teleprompter. Now, I think people will think of certainly our American listeners thinking of ESPN, where each of the presenters is able to kind of establish their own personality a bit in the way that yeah. they present. You know. I mean, Stuart Scott maybe being the most iconic of them in terms of throwing his little sort of tidbits into the way he discusses yeah. things. Did you have any input in terms of what the script was? Or was it literally, here it is, read the news, word for word, don't mess up? Uh, very good question. So there were absolutely presenters on the channel who would be able to do whatever they wanted to do. Um, and some unbelievably good broadcasters. Um, it's a hell of a training ground. Uh, the stage and age that I was at, I literally stuck to the, the train tracks that were were written for me. And I, that, I mean, I say that you, you begin to, you you, you know, you, you begin to try things. So um, you know, you begin to start interviewing people um, once once I've done a few weeks, and then you know, often you start updating live games as you're, uh, you know, as you're watching them. So it, it's a very curious channel. It's very hard to describe to people um, who haven't seen it. But essentially, it's. Um, it's people in vision talking about live sport that they're watching that you can't see is the kind of premise of the, of the channel. Um, and I remember watching, I think it must have been the 2006 World Cup, and I was describing, he's called Simao Sambrosa, and the performance that he was putting in for Italy, and I kept calling him Samosa, and everyone was just like, what are you doing? <laughs> this is totally out of control. So I, I was... You know, I, I wasn't very good at it at the start, um, but you learn pretty quickly because you kind of have to. The difference between Sky Sports News and the reason it's written for you is that stories are coming in all of the time and people are cutting features. And so there is a producer who is constantly updating the rundown and it's it's a live channel for 18 of the 24 hours of the day. Um, and I think as a presenter, it, you couldn't really be expected to to know what you're talking about. So you have a lot of help with that. The difference between that and the rugby is that I never, uh, you know, I did the rugby for uh, probably twelve years. I think it was. I, 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 mean, I didn't write very much, but but I didn't say a word that wasn't mine. Um, and that's quite a big jumping off point. I had a great mate who he actually came up from New Zealand, um, James Gemmell, brilliant broadcaster, and he had worked in New Zealand, um, and they used to use auto cues, as we call them, teleprompters, as, as you do. And he arrived for his first live game for Sky and was like, where's the teleprompter? And they're like, I oh, know we don't use them in the UK. And he was like, right, okay. And there was about seven minutes to go until he's on air. And he's furiously trying to kind of 
work out what to talk about. It is an amazing um, baptism of fire when you start out just going with what's in your head. Um, and I can't really describe to you sometimes how difficult it is to broadcast in a stadium with 82,000 people and music and rain. Um, and uh, it, it, it can be very, and I, 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 I counted it up, there was some counted up for me. The, on the biggest games I worked on, I would have, I think it's something like 16 or 17 people who I'd have to listen to at any one time in my head, headset from the director to the producer, to the guests, to the commentators, to the reporters, uh, to the people in the VT trucks, etc. So you, you've got a huge amount of information in your ears in very trying circumstances, but it's unbelievably good fun. I mean, it's unbelievably good fun when when it all comes together. Um, and it's it's a real privilege. I, I genuinely mean that. It's a huge privilege to, to be able to help shape and tell the stories that big audiences stop to watch. And I've never, ever, ever forgotten that. Um, you know, it's, it's a very, very fortunate position. It's a hell of a rush, but it's a hell of a privilege. And, you know, trying to, I guess, progress a little bit on towards the things that you're doing more recently, but as, as part of that transition... I've heard you speak about in the past how, to a certain extent, you almost defined yourself as being Alex Payne, Sky Sports. Yeah. And that yeah. you could kind of relate to rugby well, or athletes retiring where you have attached yourself, you know, sort of your profession or your club or your sort of international status defines you as a person. And yeah. that you, you had to shift away from that as you left Sky Sports. How difficult of a transition was that for you? And kind of what what was the period like immediately after leaving in terms of then embracing sort of new challenges and new goals that you then had? Yeah, very good question. Um, what was that like? So I would say, I mean, where to start the answer? I was about as loyal a, a company man as you can be. I mean, my Twitter handle, and in fact, we were set up as this, but my Twitter handle was at Sky Sports Alex P. So I was, my brand was, my brand is dreadful, but but people identified me very much with the company, so much so that my 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 family just you know, forever were taking the piss and, you know, was just known as Sky Sports Alex P. And it's a sort of you know, big, big boots type thing, let's cut you down. Um, and it was a very sad situation, really, because when I took over as the lead broadcaster of, of rugby for Sky, we had every right, all, all of the television rights. And, you know, the landscape has changed enormously. And, you know, when I was a kid in the UK, we had three channels. And now there are not only 900 available via a satellite service, but you've also got the, infi- the, the infinite pool that is YouTube and the internet. So what's gone from being a, a viewing option of three is now exponential you can watch anything from anywhere at any point in the history of whatever's been broadcast which is an extraordinary concept to get your mind around the reason i mentioned that is that the landscape in the uk became much more challenging for sky and bt came onto the onto the landscape they snapped up the rugby they, they saw a big opportunity there um and so i went through about six years where as a broadcaster every year we were seeing more and more rights get chipped away um, and we ended up with a portfolio that wasn't really that enticing. And we were sort of bobbing around a little bit, hoping that it would come back and then it didn't. And so it ended up actually with Sky losing everything. And I went from, I, I sort of was telling this to someone the other day, I, I'm, I was a person who had a sort of, you know, every man has a spreadsheet, which you, know, you put in your income and whatever it is, and your outgoings and your kids and all that kind of thing. And I had a spreadsheet that was built and it was just a lovely, gentle trajectory. And it was going to take me all the way to retirement as a broadcaster. Um, you know, I was going to work three days a week and I was going to have a busy day and have my 
haircut and go for a coffee and then I'd do a bit of work at the weekends and life was going to be very peachy. And I had these sort of contract renegotiation conversations and the first one was very promising. You love what you do, we'll find something else. The second one was, you know, we, we think we might, you know, move you into X, Y, Z. And the third one was, thanks very much, we're not renewing your contract. Um, and I'm sure there were signals in there that I'd missed, et cetera, but I genuinely thought that we were just going to carry on. Um, and so when they said, thanks, but no thanks, I was like, wow, did not see that coming. I was 37 years old with two kids and you know, a wife, et cetera. And I had sort of three or four months until I, I was out of a job, um, which was fairly alarming, really. And um i had started the room at that point but it was very very embryonic it was three of us around my kitchen table and we weren't really generating any revenue and it wasn't really um you know it wasn't really a lily pad to leap to it was an opportunity but not much more than that um and it was it was really really difficult um and i i was i was very very clear with myself i did not want to be bitter about it you know these things happen everybody you know, everybody gets dealt their hands and you have to deal with what you're given. But I wasn't very experienced at a setback um, of that of that magnitude, I suppose. I'd been incredibly fortunate and I'd worked incredibly hard and I felt very loyal to the business. Um, but I was adamant not to be bitter. And I, yeah, I, I was very, very lost for, for quite a while because I, you know, you walk into a room or you walk into a party or whatever it is and people want to talk to you about working for Sky and they want to talk to you about what you do. And with all of that gone, I was like, what, what on earth am I? I'm a fairly bang average you know, sports presenter who works in a relatively interesting sport in the UK, but certainly not a global sport uh, in the true sense of the word. Um, and I was very, very lost. I had some very good people who kind of helped me. Um, I was given a brilliant piece of advice when I was really genuinely, the wheels were wobbling. He said, look, and I, I hope I hope people would take it the right way. He said, it's very hard to starve. Um, and I know I, I don't mean that in a way that you know, others out there have obviously got far, you know, I'm, I'm an incredibly position, uh, privileged position, but it's sort of, I got to the point where I was thinking, oh my God, I'm never going to earn another penny ever again. And therefore, how do I get through what's to come? Um, and that sort of began to build me back up again. And then just little things drop into place and suddenly the room began to get going and the, what, what, you know, we went from three to 10 and, you know, we're now 40 odd in the business and, and that's that's you know become very exciting i ended up getting a, an invitation to to work on a podcast with the two reprobates that i work with now um and that's turned into something that is just an absolute beast we're now in business together you know we're bringing out a gin we've got um, a live tour around the uk with 16 dates of you know 38,000 tickets or whatever it is so the, the end point is that it's been the most turbulent five, six years of my entire life by a factor of 100. And I have loved every single minute of it. I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't go back to Sky. Um, Fun if I still actually do a bit of work for them now and again. But I have embraced the chaos. It's the, it's the richest, most sort of characterful development that I've been on from basically being on this this spreadsheet of, pretty predictable you know progress through to jesus christ where the hell do you earn tomorrow's sandwich type thing and um i have genuinely 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 loved it so yeah i went through some very very dark times and i've absolutely no qualm saying that i i you know i really did find myself in a bit of a pit um but i i'm a much more resilient and i would hope much more interesting character off the back of it than i ever was just turning up and doing what i was doing 
And, and you've mentioned the good, the bad, and the, rug, the rugby podcast there, and, and your co-host and Mike Tyndall, former World Cup winner with England, and, and James Haskell, who I guess in some respects is one of the biggest personalities in the world of rugby. And, and that's not so, to, to downplay his career achievements within the sport itself. I find your podcast to be incredibly refreshing from the perspective that the, the kind of honesty and that comes through the conversations that you have to be refreshing. Yeah. Um, I think in some ways for American listeners, not direct parallels, but in a sense, close to what Pat McAfee has managed to achieve in, in some ways in terms of kind of just talking about it in a genuine way yeah. about sport. Yeah. Do you think you're helped in having those conversations from just the culture within the sport itself of rugby? And, and in a sense, maybe it not being as big of a global sort of institution and organization as some others, and people are then more willing to be open. Or, you know, how, how have you managed to kind of strike that chord in terms of getting very genuine conversations with the people who come on? So, that, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting point. I think part of the magic is in, when we, when we pull, pull the, the three of us together, so I, I was very involved in, in building it. Mike Tindall is he, a phenomenal player, hard as nails. Um, looks very similar to Jason Statham, for those of your audience who aren't huge rugby fans. Won the World Cup, which is the greatest accolade, and then married the Queen's granddaughter over here. So he sort of transcends not just sport at which he was excellent, but also sort of you know culture and 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 relevance in the public eye. He's got the Rolodex to be all Rolodex as well. His contacts book is, is extraordinary. James Haskell is a much more um, ebullient, effusive, controversial, um, exhausting character. If I'm honest with you. Um, achieved an enormous amount in the game as well, but sort of has always found himself getting in and out of trouble with with fair sort of regularity. Um, and I and my, I was very very straight laced. I was sort of captain sensible as a broadcaster, and the fun that they've had is in corrupting and destroying what was once a very respectable media career. And it actually, it's been quite fun letting them do it. Um, so the three of us kind of we are very different characters, but we we are bonded by this thread of rugby, I suppose. But we are. We are a rugby show that isn't obsessed with rugby. So we talk a lot about mental health. Um, we did an extraordinary episode actually with Hask's best friend once, which was the two of them clowning around. This guy, Paul Doran Jones, uh, played for England as well. They were having a real sort of you know, mate session. And then suddenly in the space of an answer, it changed from the two of them prattling about through to Paul talking about his struggles as a single father and the legal system in the UK and the, the, the battles that he's had on that front, it was, absolutely, it was the most extraordinary hour of conversation. We've had Nigel Owens on our podcast talking about um, he was a, 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 the best referee in the world of our game, but talking about his struggles, you know, in terms of coming out and, um, you know, the journey that he went on. Um, that was extraordinarily emotional. Um, so it's not really about the nuance and the day to day of the game. It's about characters who have a foot within our sport. Um, why do we why do we get people to unlock? I don't know really. I think it's it is that blend between James and Mike and the relationship that they have forged with a lot of our guests from being in the sporting environment with them in the change rooms, etc. And also hopefully, you know, my abilities as a journalist to know what the, the, the seams are to pick at. Um and it, it's been an extraordinary journey because we you know, we genuinely love what we do. It's an absolute shambles, but it's one of the highlights of the week for the three of us. Um, but we actually have quite a few people now asking to come on the pod because they want to tell their story. 
And I think that's a very interesting thing in this den, as you asked about rugby's place within the sort of sporting matrix in the UK. It's not, it's not football, and it's probably tucked in behind cricket, which gives them a bit of freedom. You know, if a footballer steps out of line in the UK, they're front page news. If a rugby player does it, well, it's probably a sidebar on page 30. Um, and so they've got more freedom to do that. We are living in the digital era where every slip up is suddenly stuck up online and everybody has a view on it. Um, but rugby players in the main, it's a, it's a very honest sport. It's very difficult to play the game at the highest level, I think, if you're not going to commit. And I say honest, I don't mean honest in terms of, you know, everyone's breaking the laws at every point of the game, but you have to be a relatively committed guy uh, to be able to succeed in the sport because of the, the very nature of its physicality, et cetera. You, you, have to, you have to stand up and be counted. And I think that leads to individuals who are rounded and interesting. Um, I think a lot of the, a lot of it probably comes down to the fact that a lot of rugby players won't be set for life once they leave the sport as well. So they are they're conscious of, of of the bigger picture. I think at all times, and therefore, you know, that leads to some very interesting conversations with some. I mean, the, I can't really talk about it because the show hasn't come out yet. But the show we filmed last night with a guy called Ellis Gedge, who is if you if you haven't heard of Ellis and you don't love your rugby, he is he's a kind of cross between Mike Tyson and. He's sort of like a mini Mike Tyson, really. I mean, he's just, he is an absolute superstar here in, in, in England. And he's come from, by his own admission, the wrong side of the tracks. Um, you know, he was a bad boy growing up. And I think, you know, he's been very open about that. And rugby has kind of taken him. He's obviously put a huge amount into it. But rugby has, has elevated him into this really inspirational character. Um, you know, he's captained his country. Um, he's seen as a real leader amongst you know, some pretty alpha males. and we've he's he's part of our pod he does 10 15 shows a year with us and charting his journey he he actually has been one of the greatest things that we've done as a pod because we were talking to him three or four years ago where he was getting banned every week and he was fighting every week and he was angry at everything and you know he drops in you know twice a month and we've just been on this journey with him as he matures and he grows up and he recognizes that the way he, a really interesting line he came out with last night is that he's playing the best rugby of his career right and he has been very honest with himself and said that he was turning up to training in a bad mood and tired and wasn't doing as well as he could. And it's because he was gaming until two o'clock in the morning. He's a huge and a very successful gamer. And he just said, look, I can't continue to do that. But you wouldn't find, I don't think you'd find many sports people who sort of, who, who open up in that way. Um, and, and I think Ellis is just, he's just not frightened of any of the consequences. Um, and that's something we're we're really proud of is that we are a space where people come to genuinely tell their story and to know that they will be challenged. Um, it's not just a media interview where you get in and get out as quick as you can. It's surprising to me because when I think gamers, I definitely think football. But then for rugby, I think they're having more fun besides gaming. So it's it's interesting now that it's it's gotten into yeah. every sport. <laughs> Well, I think Luke, Luke Cowan Dickey, who's who's the England hooker at the moment, I think he was. I, I don't. I, I'm not a gamer, so I don't know whether I'm talking out of my, um, you know, the, the role. I, I think he was the best Medal of Honor or Call of Duty certain game. I don't, I'm, God, I'm making. I'm really showing my age. He was <laughs> prolific. I think in Call of Duty, and was number one in the world at, at shooting something. Okay, which means nothing to me, but apparently it's very impressive to those. So, who know. No, I mean, but, yeah, within that world, would be huge. Yeah, for yes, sure. Yeah, he goes to show you that 
that you know it's yeah it's everywhere i'm sure, constantly trying to get my kids off there so I, I know the pain. so you, you you're talking about you know you've now i guess mentioned half a dozen world famous rugby players that you've been next to in in either your podcast or, or broadcasting and eddie and i were actually just talking off air when we were watching the masters a few days ago about how we're so tired of commentators saying that, oh, this guy is so competitive. Like he's at the highest level and I've heard he's a fierce competitor. Like, of course, like they're, they're, they're reaching the highest level because they're competitive. But that got me thinking, you know, you're around these people when they're not on the pitch. How competitive are they like when they're doing a broadcast? Like when you go to commercial break, are they kind of arguing and, and kind of fighting and kind of trying to do, I can do this better than you can? You know, like, do, do you have any good stories about how, competitive they can get just in do their they, normal life <laughs> well what i would say just 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 before the sort of competitive thing is i think increasingly and i i have worked with a lot of players um so rugby has only been a professional sport since 1995 so i over the years have worked with a lot of guys who are amateurs and they played it because they loved it and they played it at the highest level and were exceptional but they did it because they love it and now obviously the game is fully professional and it is you know it's it's it's, it's an extraordinary commitment the more I work with Hass and Tins, the more I realise, and I say it to them on a weekly basis, to reach the pinnacle of any sport now, you've actually got to be pretty weird. You have got to be slightly on the edge of normality. And that is because you have to drive yourself to extremities and commitments and dedications that people like, I presume you guys and I, I just got no interest in putting myself to that place. So, you know, yes, they're uber competitive but they're also quite weird is the honest truth of it um i i mentioned sean fitzpatrick and michael liner earlier who are they're two of the sort of granddads of of rugby now and i hope they won't mind me saying that but one's an australian and one is a kiwi and they have had over the years just the most wonderful rivalry and i will never forget working with them one morning and <laughs> so we, we used to do um in the UK, we would be showing rugby from New Zealand and Australia. And so you're in you're in the studio at 4.30 in the morning, you're on air at 6.30, you know, you get breakfast served while you're watching the game, etc. And as we came on air one morning, Michael, who's very tidy, his tie is always in a beautiful knot, and his hair is perfect, and he's very particular about the way he speaks, Australian, man of the you know, city. Great rival with Fitzy, who's a bit of a rough and ready Kiwi, and his hair's always all over the place, and, you know, his fingers are mangled, and he looks like he's fought a thousand wars. Um, they're always sort of going at each other. And as we came on air, the count goes five, four, three, and I'm about to do my good morning, everybody, and welcome to the show. And Fitzy just leans over and he just, I, I don't even know if I could do it, he just depresses Michael's chair. So Michael went from looking erudite and small to sort of like that on screen. And we came on air on this sort of, this, this two shot, and Michael Liner, this great icon of Australian rugby, is basically sitting on the floor with Fitzy kind of looking down at him. And watching Michael try and pump his chair back up. And the, I mean, it just was an absolute shambles. But one of the funniest things that I've ever seen in studio. Um, it just, it's just moments like that. So, I mean, uber competitive. You get on the golf course and, and it turns to fisticuffs. But it's, it's the little one-upmanships that are... That are the, 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 that's where you really see the competition come to the fore. You, what you get once or twice is newbies on the block who will arrive in a studio... And they will have come with notes that are prepared and pristine and that have done their research. And we'll be having breakfast beforehand in, in sort of the truck at a game. And the wise old owls come in and they go, oh, what have you got today? And they'll be, oh, you know, the young guy will say, well, I've got this stat on that. And I think this is a very interesting angle of play. And I'm really looking forward to seeing 
this player. And you'll go on air. And in the first answer, the wise old owl will talk about the stat that the kids has given him <laughs> and that facet of play and how much he's looking forward to watching this kid have a run out today. And the young young pup is just staring into the uh, into the headlights with absolutely all of his gold material taken and used by others. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think those fires, they never die, but they just move to different different battlegrounds. I'm conscious, obviously, we don't want to keep you forever. And, you know, we're kind of approaching the hour mark. So I you know, do want to sure. let you get on with your evening. I have one more question, which is actually going to switch us a little bit away from rugby. So, Frank, I don't know if you have a final question that might be rugby related. If not, I'm going to kind of switch topics slightly for us. Yeah, I mean, I I think I kind of have to ask, you know, what's the what's the best match you've been a part of broadcasting? I mean, I'm sure there's 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 many, but is there one in particular that just stands out? And you, you know, what 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 did it feel like? Um. Yeah, that is a very, very good question. Um, I think I would probably, uh, and I'll try and keep this quite short because it was an extraordinary, extraordinary day. Uh, I'd probably turn to the second test in uh, Wellington in 2017 between the British and Irish Lions. And we're sort of going back to where we started, which is a team that means a huge amount to me, uh, and New Zealand. And for those of your listeners who've got n- not a lot of love or, or interest in rugby, the All Blacks are, I think I'm right to say, the most successful sports team in history i think they've got like a 90 odd percent win ratio they are the kings of rugby um, and for a little island uh, you know on the, on the wrong side of the world they are remarkably good at it the reason i think that they uh, meant so much to me is that it was probably a point in my career where i was beginning to really enjoy broadcasting and, and really enjoy being on air. i wasn't quite as frightened of it as I'd, i had been it was the second test it's a three test series and the lines have been beaten very badly in the first so you know, obviously everyone was expecting them to lose again. They hadn't lost, um, they hadn't, New Zealand hadn't lost at home in any test match in, in years. It was a huge ask for an invitational team to go down there and beat. And we were working with that day a guy called um, Surya Magikan, who is, is just one of the sort of greats of the game. He was a Lions coach, hugely successful in that regard. Um, he was also a phenomenal player back in the day. And he is sort of enormously respected and, and a guy who I admire greatly. And in the two or three hours before, I mean, it must have been a couple, two, two and a half hours before we were due to go on air, he became very, very unwell. Um, and we were I mean, genuinely extremely concerned, straight to hospital, um, not in a very good way at all, if I'm honest with you. And it's a, it was a very, very um, sort of anxious situation to be in. And normally... You know, if you're on a good day, you will end up, you know, you're having an hour's rehearsal time and you'll get very comfortable and off you go. And because of this situation with Serene, we ended up basically not having any rehearsal at all. In fact, we weren't actually going to go on air. It was that worrying. And they were just going to come on air with the game. We weren't going to do our build-up from our studio, which is normally sort of a full hour. So the, the whole thing is beginning to become uh, not really about the rugby and very much about his health and his welfare. And with about five minutes to go until we were scheduled to go on air, call comes through, he's fine, he's sitting up in your bed, he wants the show to go on. So suddenly we've got four minutes to get ourselves ready for what for me was the biggest broadcast I'd ever done. We hadn't rehearsed and we weren't really entirely sure what was happening and everything had been very much about uh, not the show. And it's in those moments that you sort of, you know, the hours and hours and hours you've done on Sky Sports News and and, the amazing team that you have around you come to the fore and we ended up doing one of the best build-ups we'd ever done because people are just buzzing. He's going to be fine. The show is on. Off we go. And it was fun and it was lively. 
And there are days in sport when you turn up at a ground expecting one thing and there just is something really weird. There's a crackle, there's an energy. And suddenly this sort of energy built uh, around the stadium. The Lions fans were all in. It was pouring with rain. And, um, yeah, it just, it just turned into one of those days where New Zealand were phenomenal. They built themselves an early lead. The Lions were hanging on in there. Bit of rope-a-dope going on. New Zealand then have a man sent off. And everyone thinks the Lions are going to come back. This is going to be amazing. The Lions then start playing even worse. And so you're like, my God, they're going out with an absolute sort of damp squibber for final performance. 2-0, series is over. You know, we've got a, a week in New Zealand to kill with, with nothing on the third test. And suddenly in the last, I think it was the last 11 minutes, the Lions from nowhere score these two extraordinary tries with the very last kick of the game. They win the test match. And it just was, it just was a seismic, seismic sort of, result for for a team that that is stretched in all resources and I will never ever forget that then you know it was just a sort of it was just a wonderful story to be a part of which was finished off by my brother who'd flown out to watch the test series with a couple of mates and we had this sort of phenomenal studio looking down on all the Lions fans Um, and in the post-match build down my brother who had consumed far more than he should have done uh, basically tried to climb in through the window to say hello as we were live with Sean Fitzpatrick and Stephen <laughs> Ferris, some of the greatest players that played the game. And there's this sort of, this still on the family pinboard at home of me in my suit and my tie with my clipboard talking to the greats and my brother pissed as a fart with his lion's hat on, clambering in through the window and security hauling him off. And um, it was just a great day. And and it's sort of, it, it, it could have gone in such an awful direction. It ended up ending in the most extraordinary circumstances. And yeah, I'd do that. I'd do that one again if I could. That was a good old day. I mean, that's, that's amazing. And then just, just quickly, I mean, kind of taking your brother as the example, you know, he's there solely as a fan and is just, you know, it overtaken by the moment. How hard is it sometimes as a broadcaster to be in that experience and have to use the emotions, I guess, to your advantage, but not, overuse them where you now just look yeah. like a crazy fan and and not who you're supposed to be like a professional broadcaster yeah it's it's really interesting that so as a professional broadcaster you have to tread the line and and it, that can be very very difficult at times i i mean i did i did funny enough i keep talking about the lions but i did the lions uh last summer for sky and they went to south africa and they lost with the last kick of the third test uh, which is exactly what had happened 12 years earlier. In fact, it was the same player who kicked them to defeat in uh, 2009, who kicked the South Africa to victory again in, in 2021. And that is really, really hard, um, you know, particularly if you care about it and you've put a lot into your broadcast, because you know at that point it's people who just want to kick the telly. Um, funnily enough, I found it actually easier to control my emotions as a broadcaster because you've got a job to do than I do if I watch it now, I sort of pace around and scream and shout a bit. Um, but I think you're right. You, you, you said a really interesting thing about commentary. Um, and I think there is room now for, for a more sort of colourful way of talking about it. Um, and that, I think, is what the podcast does. I mean, we don't talk about it in the moment, but we talk about it with great energy off the back of it. Um, I would love, and I've always said this, I would love a sports channel that is 18 plus and you get commentators who say what they really think. That guy's an apps. What is he? What is he fucking doing? You know, I think that would be a really enjoyable way to listen to commentary who are saying what you're thinking. Um, but I can understand why Sky haven't necessarily gone in for that as a as a channel at this point. Um, so yeah, it's it's 
you learn very quickly to control your emotions when there's a job to do. But it's funny how those emotions come out much more now that I, I do less of that. Um, you know, and ultimately we all go into it because we love the sport. You know, we're fans at heart. That's why we pursue the careers that we're lucky enough to, to be able to go for. And um, yeah, that fan has come back out again as I, as I do a little bit less of it. I think there's a number of topics we could go into in more detail in terms of, you know, the, what you've done in your media career and, and what you're currently doing with the podcast and stuff like that and, and, and stories, I'm sure, and just an infinite number of sto- interesting anecdotes. So it would be great Apologies. to... I've waffled a lot. It's very nice to be asked questions. My job is always to ask them. So I'm, I'm taking the opportunity to, to, to waffle. Apologies. No, I mean, it's great. And, and, I'm, and as I'm sure you can appreciate, it's actually wonderful interviewing people where you ask a question and they, and they just run with it. It's, it's a very pleasant experience versus feeling like you're kind of pulling teeth with someone and, and trying to drag the, the interest out of them. And it would yeah. be probably great to have you back on in the future because I think we've, you know, there's so many areas we could still go into. I have one final question for you, which is a completely different direction to what we've been discussing. In sure. that you went uh-huh. to Eton College, which I did, yeah. for those unfamiliar with it, you know, one of the sort of sort of most you know sort of a historical institution from a you know a schooling perspective in the United Kingdom, and in many ways, yeah. probably what a lot of foreigners imagine when they think of what it's like going to a kind of British school in that you're very dressed up in your uniforms with tails and waistcoats on and, you know, the most formal experience possible in some respects. I'm sure, again, there's a lot of stories you could go into in terms of what that experience was like. But I I have two questions, which is one, what do you think are the biggest misconceptions that people have when they do imagine either the students attending or what the experience is like at Eton? And additionally, as you've then got older, what have you grown to appreciate that you felt like was normal? when you were there that now as you've kind of undoubtedly found out more about what other people's experiences were like, you realize was quite peculiar. Yeah. Um, So, so yeah, bizarrely, I think Eton was founded in 1440 or something like that, which I think makes it older than modern America. So there's, there's a lot of, (laughs) there's a lot of history there. Um, and you do definitely feel that. Well, I suppose you, you, you do you feel that or not? I, you don't really feel it as a. I, so I went at thirteen, from thirteen to eighteen. Um, what is the biggest misconception? I think. I mean, interestingly, actually, I I wouldn't probably have gone here otherwise. But I'm actually sort of I went to see it again the other day because I've got a boy and and um, he's sort of getting to that age where we're, we're looking at secondary schools, etc. And it was very very interesting going back. It is a school that is laden in history and it's had 20 odd you know british prime ministers and it's it's produced some of the most extraordinary characters out of the the school itself um and yet the thing that really stuck out to me going to have a look at it this was a few weeks ago actually is that it is modernizing rapidly um and i think it's it's a very difficult balance that the school has to strike because you know it you have to remember where you've come from and you have to maintain tradition because it's, that's an important necessity. But also you have to be prepared to move forward and the world is changing in the most extraordinary speed and in the most um, sort of uh, all-encompassing directions, if that's the thing. But I, I think I think the biggest misconception of the school is that it is all um, it's all just rich kids, basically. And... Um, that is that is not the reality of it. There is a very small 
number of kids who pass through the school or boys who pass through the school who are responsible for 95% of the way that Etonians are perceived would be my, my answer to your question. There are a lot of very, very normal people who go through. And of course, they're enormously privileged to have the opportunity to go to you know, what I would probably say is one of the best schools in the world. But there are a lot of children who aren't privileged who are now going through that school in the same way. There's an enormous bursary. I can't remember the statistic, but there's an enormous bursary program in place. Um, and it, it is not just about kids who can afford it. It's about kids who deserve it. now, And, that, and that's absolutely right. The, the second part to your question is what do I sort of appreciate about it? I, I went in and I, I grew up in in a very rural sort of county in, in, in the UK called Dorset, Greenfields. I went to a little school. It was, you know, I'm not, I'm not the person that you would perceive to be an Etonian, certainly um, in going in. I was you know, wide-eyed and 13 years old. And going in wide-eyed and 13 years old, you don't really know what it is that you're doing and you don't really necessarily feel that overawed by it as a result. I mean, you know, it's, it is a remarkable place, actually, when you go back now and look at it. Um, but the thing that Eton did for me that I will always be eternally grateful for is that it well, it did two things. One is I think it took a very, very ordinary kid, and I was bang average at everything, and it gave me a chance to be really good at something when I found what that thing was. And I think that is a very special trait to have. And I don't actually think I ever found it at school. Um, I think I found it when the passion that I had for sport was unlocked by combining that love by, by an opportunity at Sky. And I mentioned earlier that I'd never done any broadcasting and I'd never done any training and I'd never done any acting and I'd never done any performing of any real capacity. But when I found the thing that I knew I wanted to do, it had given me a confidence, I suppose, a belief, a resilience um, to go and get it. And, you know, I, I took a step off the top diving board and, you know, I, I'd never done any training of any sort. And with 12 hours notice, my executive producer said, the first time I ever used a live microphone, it was six o'clock uh, on a Friday evening. And he said, I haven't got a reporter for the game at Twickenham tomorrow. I'd like you to do it. And at two o'clock the following day, I went live on air at a rugby match with 80,000 people in the crowd. Now, you've got to be in the right place at the right time and you've got to work bloody hard to do it. But I think the school gave me just just a a belief that when I found the thing I wanted to to find or was looking for, that I'd be all right and I could give it a proper crack. And, you know, I I feel eternally grateful. I'm I'm unbelievably lucky to have gone to a school like that. and I hope that I've sort of repaid the investment and the opportunity that my, my parents gave me by finding the thing that I really loved and, and going for it and, and, and sort of reaching it, really. Um, yeah, so I, I, think, I think that the, the perceptions of the people who go there are, are driven by a very small minority of, of the kids who come out. And, and I've got some unbelievably good friends from the days uh, that I had there, and they're all very normal people. They really are um, very cognizant and, and very aware of, of the amazing opportunity they've had. But it's a bit of a bubble in your life. You go into this extraordinary establishment. Um, you are given every opportunity under the sun to find the thing that you want to do. They will really help you go for it if you commit to it. And then you're often back out to the world again. So it's it's a pretty small microcosm in your entire life. It's an amazing school. 
um, and it did it did amazing things for me. But um, it's not the be all and the end all. I think you, you've got to put a lot in and around it in order to actually make it work. It doesn't give anything to you on a plate. I think that's a good explanation, and I do think it's just a fascinating world for people, uh, you know, who are unfamiliar with it. And I do think there's yeah. there's a kind of aura in some respects that surrounds it, some positive, some negative, yeah. and, and yeah. you know. Um, I had my room at school looked out onto Windsor Castle and you end up wearing these tailcoats every day and you think you look normal and you go to school, you, you know, you go to chapel in a, in a building that was built in 1480 or whatever it is and it's just all part of it. Um, you know, the more you do something, the more normal it becomes, I suppose. But if you walk through the town, I, I go back now and I'm like, it's just another world. And I left 24 years ago and it's just, yeah, I, I feel so removed from it. Um, I, I picture the most sophisticated school lunches I've ever seen. <laughs> oh, it was pheasants every day, you know. It was uh, caviar and, uh, and fine champagne. We had chicken. I, I remember we had chicken 14 days in a row once because the catering staff got it, got their budgets wrong. So, you know, those are the things you remember from the days. There's, chicken every day for two weeks. Must, must have been um, a revolution. Yeah. I, but, yeah, really. I remember having something that tasted well. like chicken. <laughs> Yeah, but, no, I mean it's it, it's interesting too, and in just the way you describe it, overlooking Windsor Castle and the, kind of how old the chapel itself is. I mean, we recently on an episode spoke about the fact, um, kind of um, of one of the things that strikes Americans when they come to Europe, and that consistent theme amongst tourists of this is older than my country, or this is older with the whole city I'm from. And it was a BuzzFeed article that we were discussing. So, you know, the, right. the most reputable source possible, but it is something that has consistently for me in terms of hosting people now who are coming from the U S or even coming from Australia or wherever it is, where you have this moments where they'll kind of look at not Windsor Castle, but a kind of insignificant, we'll be walking around the streets of Paris and they'll say to me, Oh my God, that church is so old and magnificent. What is it? And you just tell, I don't know. It's just another church. I've never paid any notice to it before, you know. And it is always interesting, in a sense, yours on a different scale. But how you can things can become very normal and and just yeah. sort of bog standard very easily. We we all live in quaint little hamlets over here in the UK. It's, you know, <laughs> it's not yeah. it's not usually stereotypes. <laughs> But Alex, thank you so much for the time that you've taken to speak with us. You know, we're very yeah. appreciative, thank obviously, you so much. and it's been it's been fascinating. It would be great to have you on again in the future because I, I think we only have tapped into yeah. you know a fraction of the topics that we could have gone into in more detail and some of the anecdotes that you would have been able to provide. But but thank you so much, and, yeah. and it's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Great, and thank you both very much indeed. Thank you for listening, and um, I hope you can get something useful. Yeah, there. no, absolutely. And well, rugby and world I'll cup say... next year, right? So maybe we'll have to we'll it have is, to have you yeah, back. Maybe give us a little ditch. preview. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, funny enough, Rugby World Cup 2031, I think, is the one to watch because that, fingers crossed, will be in the US. Well, look. And, it, you know, it's a sport that is growing rapidly on your side of the, of the pond. And it's, yeah. I, I'll be really interested to see whether people get into it. I mean, look, you, you've got the national, again, talking about for in terms of moving the room, you know, kind of expanding to the US. Here you've got, you know, one co-host in Paris for the next Rugby World Cup. You've got another co-host in, in the US for a World Cup eight years down the line. You know, it's the stars are aligning for yeah. you in terms yeah. of just uh, building off the back of this. Here's our luck. You know, this is the luck we needed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We'll make this a thing. But Thank thanks you, Jens. so much. Really enjoyed it. And, Thank you so much. And just one final note, I guess, for people who have enjoyed the conversation, they can obviously find you regularly on the Good, the Bad, and the Rugby podcast. I don't know if you want to plug 
you've said you're not the most active person on social media and, and that's not how you see yourself, but if there's anywhere else they can find you or interact with you, do you want to do any additional plugs? Uh, good, the bad, the rugby is yes. I, I, I will apologize in advance to any people who, who come and find us and then they don't necessarily enjoy what they listen to. Uh, and then I do socials. I think I'm at Alex Payne TV, which was a nod to yesteryear, but maybe, maybe one day again in the future. Who at knows? at but, not uh, sky sports, yeah, Alex Payne. Yeah. <laughs> at not sky sports, Alex Payne. May he forever let lion rest in peace. Well, thank you very much, Alex. And have a, have a great evening. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye.